T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world tonight. This is Grant Cameron, and I have a very special guest tonight. Um, um, I'm talking to uh, Martin Keller, who I am kind of surprised whether we have never met. Uh, This guy has been around when I read his book. This guy's been around almost as long as me, and he's been in the middle of the trenches and walked through the, the landmines of ufology, and I've never run into this guy. And I just, I'm fascinated to ask him some questions. Um, you'll hear a little bit about his his background, but um, Martin, have we ever met before? We have not, and uh, I've been operating in stealth mode, so that's, yeah, why, no you, kidding. You're, that's, you're that's a, why you haven't seen me. I'm, I'm uh, completely camouflaged. <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, the, the thing that I found uh, kind of strange. You're a uh, a public a public relations guy, and yet you've been able to stay under the the uh, the uh, radar. Uh, you, uh, Martin has written a book called The Space Pen Club. We'll get into why he called it that. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, UFO Disclosure, Consciousness, and Other Kind of Mind Zoomers. So by the end of this um, show, um, it's going to be like the Cheers Bar. Everybody's going to know who Martin is because you're not going to believe what, he, what the stuff he's been involved in and who he was dealing with, and I can uh, give him a heads up that um, a lot of the names that he brought up, I knew, and I think I'm the only one that ever brought the names up, and suddenly they're in his book. He, he knew who they were as well. We'll go through that, but uh, Martin Keller is a um, former pop culture journalist, published author, and unproduced screenplay writer whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Leaders, The Washington Post, Bravo, uh, the Boston Globe, uh, Final Frontier, Billboard, Utna Reader, Right On, The Star Tribune, Minneapolis St. Paul's Business Journal, City Pages, and others with appearances on Today, uh, 48 Hours, PBS, Public Radio, and more. Uh, Keller has also uh, written hijinks and hearsay. Um, sinister, sinister. sinister stories from... Uh, uh, Minneapolis's pop culture and contributed to the Minneapolis series. For the past 25 years, he has worked as an award-winning public relations specialist, including an adventurous stint for the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, CSETI. Uh, The Space uh, Pen Club is based in part on that period. And that absolutely shocked me because I have watched every move that Stephen Greer has made over... The last 20 years, I remember trying to tune in to his 2001. I took a day off work to the 2001 uh, big conference. And I remember the thing was blocked and what's going on was the old days with the routers where you got to dial in. And I thought it was the router and what's going on here. And uh, so I had the same problem. I had the same problem. I couldn't I couldn't pick it up. Wasted an hour. So let's get started on, you've got, I've got a lot of questions here for a lot of different uh, uh, aspects. And I think you're gonna be very popular because some of the stuff you were into, people love this kind of stuff. I mean, they love the disclosure, they love the, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the C-SETI stuff, they hate Stephen Greer, they, I mean, <laughs> this is all this controversial stuff that, that you were in the middle of and uh, you, re- you, you represented as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, and uh, so let's get started on how does a respected journalist who's trying to run public relations and stuff like that or public affairs, how do you get dragged into the UFO field, which is 
maybe not so disrespectable anymore, but uh, it used to be like the last thing you wanted to get into. So how, how did you get dragged into this? Well, that's a great question and it probably has four or five different answers. <laughs> uh, number one, I had a sighting as a teenager out in Western North Dakota and uh, witnessed with three other buddies uh, in a week when there were a lot of UFO sightings being reported in the uh, newspaper and uh, TV and radio broadcast outlets. And it was uh, about a 30, 30 foot diameter oval shaped white light. We couldn't make out any structure. It was about a quarter of a mile from our high school. One very cold night in February. And uh, that same week, uh, my best friend, since we were five, had a, an encounter with a red orb behind his house, which abutted uh, a park called Rocky Butte Park. And it, this ping pong sized red object came down from what appeared to be the summit of, of the butte. And it hung about 10 feet in front of us and seemed to be studying us. And we didn't know what the hell it was. It was you know, uh, we didn't have any context for it, but my friend and I have been lifelong UFO uh, seekers, I guess, for lack of a better word. We read the UFO rags as kids, and uh, once, you know, once I got out of high school, I didn't really pay any attention to this until uh, the early 90s when a friend approached me and said, you're a former journalist. I just came back from Wyoming where I spent three days with Dr. Stephen Greer and C. SETI vectoring in spaceships. And I'm going, oh yeah, sure you did. <laughs> and uh, uh, would you be interested in, in writing a story about him? He's, he's trying to get some um, exposure on his, very, what at the time was a very young organization, uh, barely, I think, 18 months or two years old. So I came at it. I came at it first as a journalist. I couldn't get the story published anywhere, and uh, I'm not trying to brag here, but it was a, it was a damn good story. I submitted <laughs> it to Rolling Stone. I submitted it to Vanity Fair and some other major publications. You know, back then media was just flatlining on uh, anything that had to do with UFOs. It was it was tabloid trash uh, culture as far as they were concerned. So that's how I came into it. Uh, I put the I put the piece I wrote about Greer and C. SETI aside, and I said, look, I can probably, and I'd been doing public relations at that point for about five or six years after I gave up journalism, although I still occasionally contribute pieces here and there. I, I said, I can probably do you, do you and C. SETI uh, better by becoming your publicist. And so for the next Five or six years off we went. We had a lot of adventures and there. Most of them are recollected in the book. Yeah, I, I was very surprised. Let's go back to your, your sightings. You actually had a couple of sightings. You were in Dickinson, North Dakota, correct? That's, that's right. Queen yeah, City so, of the Prairies. Yeah, I'm right above you. I'm in North, in Manitoba. So whenever we go east or we go west to the mm -hmm. coast, we always go down through Dickinson and head south down that Highway 85 or whatever it is when we're heading yep. And so we go through there quite a bit. So you're in that area of the of the Minot missile range. Did you ever get dragged into that thing? Because I actually had a sighting. There's a woman, the guy used to be the state director of, of, of uh, MUFON for North Dakota. His girlfriend uh, actually took me to a site at Cools Route, North Dakota, which would be just a bit north of Bismarck there, mm -hmm. and uh, to a, 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 the B-10 silo there and described how her and two other girls in 1988 saw this UFO come out of that metal thing. I said, are you sure it came out of the metal thing? She said, yeah, it came right out of that metal thing. And it was copper and it was spinning and, and during, the, during the day and uh, she wet her pants and the other girls went screaming off back home. They just lived like, this is maybe half a mile out of the, um, the, the town. And um, they used to go throw stones at the fence, to try to get the light to go on and then run like hell and, and stuff like that. So did you ever get dragged into that whole Minot thing with the missiles shutting down and well, were you aware of that at the time? Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, Minot's about a hundred miles from Dickinson. It's, you know, it's a 90 minute drive up there, but uh, a good friend of mine in Minneapolis, Tom Tallene, is a well-respected UFO researcher has uh, researched the hell out of that 
Minot incident. And you can find it online. I quote it fairly extensively in the book about that whole uh, nu nuclear silo incursion that uh, is pretty amazing because you've got, uh, you, I think it's, you've got a bomber in the sky tracking the object further down below near the base. And then you've got guys on the base freaking out, wetting their pants yeah. and uh, passing out in the Jeep. I think they came upon two guys passed out in the Jeep with some radiation uh, damage on the, on the hood of the vehicle. Um, pretty dramatic stuff and not unlike what happened at Maelstrom and I think probably some other bases. You know, I haven't read, uh, what's his name? Robert Hastings. Hastings. I haven't read Hastings book, but I've read enough about it to think like, well, you know, this should give any, anyone in the national security state pause because these, these things can operate at will and do what they want. The, the one in Minot moved a 20 ton slab off the, uh, the missile silo and then scrambled the launch codes. <laughs> so you, you've had a couple of sightings. You mentioned the one, and I remember, I think the one you just mentioned, you actually turned around and said, let's go back in my coats in the basketball game. Let's go back. You actually <laughs> called it off, but you've had a couple of sightings. So maybe you can get describe your other sighting, which is a little bit weirder. And then get into the idea of, you've heard this in ufology, are you picked? I mean, is this a random event where you, you get interested in UFOs, your father's in the Air Force, uh, you have these sightings, you get dragged into the UFO field, suddenly you're down the rabbit hole and you're wondering, you know, whether you're going to end up getting divorced or like all your friends are going to cut you loose or whatever, <laughs> and you can't get out of the rabbit hole. So let, let's go through your sightings and then whether you, what, what do you think about this idea that, that maybe they were giving you signals that you, this was more than just a random sighting. Well, it's hard to prove or disprove, uh, you know, whether I was picked I, and I wouldn't be presumptuous enough to say that I was, but when you look at the arc of my UFO story in my life and that, you know, it's spanned some 60 years now, uh, there's some definite uh, points that you can connect I just described my earlier sightings in high school, and yeah, I was the guy who said, "Let's let's go back inside, and not go out and see see what this UFO really is." You know, a quarter of a mile from our high school, but the the riddle, the little red orb thing was disturbing. And here's a spoiler: if you read the Space Pen Club book. Um, Many years later, right after I was finishing up my Greer profile, I'd been to the International Association of New Science Conference out in Fort Collins, yeah. and I met a bunch of brilliant people there and quite a few quacks who uh, talked about Steve Greer's Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind Initiative. I came home and I told my girlfriend, who's now my wife of 20-some years, I said, man, I got, I'm going to finish this and get out of here. I mean, this stuff is just too weird. But, you know, prior to that, I had a bunch of weird stuff happening in our house. Lights were coming on uh, six months before even hearing the name Steve Greer. One particular night, there were uh, sounds associated with the lights on, like it sounded like cat rutting. Uh, it was very disturbing. And that, that one really got my attention. This went on for probably six weeks. And then I had a series of dreams that culminated in a precognitive dream um, set in a harbor city that I didn't recognize at the time. I was asleep in Minneapolis, but six weeks later, I was in Boston, and I was going to meet my parents at their hotel, and I'm walking over a footbridge on the way to the Marriott over there by, uh, uh, what's the famous retail center there, Faye Phelan, or? I'm not sure, no. Uh, anyway, I stopped on the in the middle of this footbridge and looked down into the water and at the sky and at the landscape and I went, wait a minute, this is the, this is what I saw in my dream six weeks ago in Minneapolis. And I yeah. thought, well, this is a mental health check moment. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell. I didn't know how to process this. You know, I I wasn't into precognitive uh, experiences, and yet I had had a very lucid, very realistic one. Uh, I go into quite a bit of detail about it in the book. But coming back from this conference in Fort Collins, um, the night I got back the next morning, 4.03 in the morning, because I looked at the clock twice to make sure I was in fact yeah. awake and not dreaming. 
there were five little red orbs similar to the one I saw in the park in Dickinson, yeah. you know, two or three decades earlier. And I had some serious uh, residual mental and, and physical uh, effects from that experience. And I, and this is one of the puzzles in the book. Were these ETs? Were these some kind of supernatural phenomenon? Or was this a manufactured abduction type experience? And uh, I get into that pretty thoroughly in chapter three. If you can get through chapter three in my book, it's pretty smooth sailing because chapter three is very challenging. It's challenging to write. It's uh, somewhat challenging to comprehend because it's like, what What do you mean people can go around and, and create manufacture these experiences? And apparently they can. There's technology that has existed for a long time to create that. A lot of it coming out of the MK Ultra period uh, in the late 70s. Everybody's familiar with, with that, that, that lived through the 70s when the congressional hearings were held and it was exposed that we had been dosing servicemen and women with uh, LSD in a behavior modification experiment. But uh, according to the sources I read for this chapter, uh, there were all sorts of other tricks in this program that were all directed toward control and behavior modification and alien hoaxing, alien abduction hoaxing was one of them. So that's a very long answer to your fairly simple question. No, that's, that's a big thing that Stephen Greer, and we can maybe get into this latest controversy that he's gotten into with this video that he's put out. Uh, and that's his contention is that the the military ops have this type type of technology. So that's the thing I always look at is why would like, for example, you see it at a basketball game. Like, what's this thing doing? Like, I always ask people, like, what was the UFO doing? And they always go, wasn't doing anything. It was just there. Do you think it wanted you to see it? Yeah, I think so. And it's like it shows, it shows up. So why would why would the black ops or whoever be picking on some guy in North Dakota, in, you know, by putting stuff in a, in a, in a room. Cause Steven sort of contends that, that the, they have this kind of stuff. And so how do you balance that between whether it's ET or whether it's um, the, the government or the, you know, the black ops people? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a big frustration uh, related to the, those experiences. And that's also one of the puzzles that, threads its way through the book you know whenever i had a chance to discuss these red orbs with other ufologists like jorge martin from uh, puerto rico you know he said without missing a beat he goes oh those are the grays they're shapeshifters and i go okay that's one for the grays <laughs> and then uh you know i talked to dr colm kelleher at nids when he was working at nids bigelow's national institute for discovery sciences back in vegas because after i left c city i thought well you know they couldn't they couldn't really um hire me on staff ever they never had the funding for it they paid my expenses and or they didn't want to fund you they 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 wanted for free wasn't that the thing that bigelow didn't want to pay for bigelow apparently didn't want to pay for it according to keller (laughs) i went okay here's a billionaire he doesn't want to pay for professional services okay that's one for bigelow (laughs) and zero for keller um but, you know, I, I went to dinner with uh, with Colm uh, after an afternoon of talking with him and uh, Eric Davis and one other guy in their office. And, um, you know, we're making small talk. We're making big talk, talking UFO scuttlebutt. And then we get into the red, red orbs discussion. And he got very interested in that. And uh, I described... Uh, the event as I, I as I just have here now and and Kelleher says oh yeah the red orbs uh, we experienced those at the ranch you know Skinwalker Ranch where they they staked out for two or three years trying to study these things and uh, he says yeah the we saw those at the ranch they spooked the horses well if you read the book and I didn't read it while I was finishing my book because I didn't want it to influence where I was going in the Space Pen Club. Uh, <clears throat> you read the book, they did more than spook the horses. Uh, quite a few disturbing events related to these orbs at that ranch. 
And I said to him over dinner, I said, well, after he made that comment, I said, well, what do you think they are? And he says, we don't know, but we don't think they're benign. <laughs> so I'm going, oh, good. <laughs> uh, it's not the answer I wanted. So I don't know, was I picked? I, I, don't, I don't know. I think considering that a, a black psyops team might have, you know, foisted something into my bedroom, not only that night, but other nights when the like white light hit me one more one evening when I looked out my window yeah. and I shot straight up. I, I had just come awake and I shot straight up in bed and I went, this is not good. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in control. Everything yeah. else had just been perceptual at that point. And now it's like, okay, the line has been crossed. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't know, you know, these, these are the tough questions I think any experiencers have to deal with. And I went looking through a lot of the literature, the best literature, hopefully, to try to find answers. And in some ways I'm still looking, although I, a couple of points in the, in the book, I say, this is my farewell to ufology. Yeah. Here we are in the, in the middle luck. of 2021, both neck deep in it and in, in, in a whole new, uh, climate with the media final, finally getting on board with it as a serious uh, discussion. Yeah. Now, um, I just make a point with the with the orbs. Your sighting was what year? Your first sighting and when then this all was going on? Uh, the first sighting in high school was my junior year of high school. So that would have been uh, 67, I think, 68. Okay. So my, my, I don't know if you know my story, but in 75, um, in North Dakota, they put in the only anti-ballistic missile unit ever to go operational, the, in Nakoma, North Dakota, where they put in 100 new nuclear missiles. Right. There was always the joke that if, if North Dakota had been a country, it would have been a nuclear superpower, because at yeah. that point it had 400 nuclear missiles in, yeah. inside. I don't think that was a joke. I think that was real. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so we went, we, uh, we had on our side of the border, as soon as they put in that anti-ballistic missile unit in February of 1975, we started getting the sightings on our side of the border, like every night they were there and I had no interest. I just went to this town because everybody said they were seeing stuff. I saw it. And of course I went down the rabbit hole. I, everybody else went on with their life and I just went down the rabbit hole. And in 76 or 77, I was called down to North Dakota, again, just North of Bismarck to a small town. I, I keep forgetting the name of the town, but I remember I went there and the, the there was like a no stop sign, one store, there was literally nothing. And in the town hall, there were so many people in there. They were they were going out of the door. It was like unbelievable. It's like everybody from 100 miles around had come in there because they were had these orbs flying, uh, tra chasing these cars around. And it was exactly what we were seeing on our side of the border. These small objects on the ground, and we used to call them ground lights or monitors, where they would they would sort of instead of sending the big ship, they'd have these little things around to to monitor. So just just to give you that that heads up that we were I was actually down in North Dakota near where you were. Che uh, you know, checking all this stuff out. And I'd been called down there because these people were trying to figure out what are, what are these small lights that are, that are moving around. And now to go to this uh, Kelleher, why were you contacting Kelleher? And can you talk about Eric Davis? Cause you, you mentioned him in the book and that's where I say to people, they should read the book because you've, you've encountered all the big names. I mean, all the people that have made the news and Eric Davis, I've dealt with him since about 2000. I would say he's the sharpest guy has the most knowledge of anybody I've ever met. So what was that conversation? What did Eric tell you any stuff? Cause you know, he can get going and he, and he's, uh, he's got a lot of opinions and he knows a lot of stuff. Well, <clears throat> I went out to NIDS to try to pitch public relations services to them and they yeah. weren't interested. I had very uh, limited time with Eric. I, I think after we said hello and changed pleasantries before we all sat together in a little conference room and, and talk turkey, uh, he asked me, you know, kind of point blank, you know, how do they, how do you think they get here from there? And, and I said, well, I don't know. I, I think that's a TBD. And he goes, well, I know they, you know, they come through the wormholes, the, these space wormholes. And I said, yeah, you have that figured out? He goes, absolutely. And that was pretty, that was probably the most significant thing he said to me. I don't know if he's being glib or what, but he was fairly quiet in the uh, in the subsequent meeting that went on for about you know ninety minutes to two hours, and then I went to dinner with Coleman. It's too bad we didn't invite uh, Eric because you know, as as you indicated, he he was all over the news um, earlier this spring with uh, in the New York Times being quoted by Leslie Kane. 
about uh, briefing congressional people and I'm going, ah, BFD, you know, Greer did this 20 years ago, <laughs> briefed a lot of people, including CIA Director Woolsey, which nobody believed at the time. Yeah, But uh, I outlined that pretty clearly. In fact, they reprinted the uh, news release that we wrote because there was so much pushback a few years after that meeting. Uh, the guy that set it up, John Peterson from the, uh, uh, I forget the Ar name. Arlington Institute. Yeah, the Arlington Institute think tank. I'm not even sure if that's still around anymore, but, and I haven't talked to John in years either, but, um, you know, John just came out in the press and said, no, this never happened. And and then people start like career and other people start sending him emails like, hello, this did happen. Here's the proof, including some of John's, you know, true friends just said, John, you know, you got to talk, walk back this denial because it did happen. And here's, here are the things you said about it. I found that very significant that you um, and people have brought this up because I put it, had it on my website and. And a lot of people attacked and said, you know, Greer's making this stuff up. And I said, you got to distinguish between his character, his, his character and whether he's telling the truth. He may be the toughest guy that you have to deal with. He has a very big ego, very hard to deal with, but that doesn't mean he's lying. So you were part of this, this, uh, this setup for the CIA director, correct? You were, you knew this was happening and. I knew there, I knew there was a high profile meeting that had been set up by Peterson in Washington. And he and Steve, to his credit, didn't didn't tell me or any of his other close associates in the inner circle of C-SETI at that time who it was. I thought it was Al Gore, the way he talked about it. And then afterwards, he, when it had happened, about a week afterwards, uh, he said, no, it wasn't Al Gore. It was it was. Uh, <laughs> The CIA director, I almost fell out of my chair in South <laughs> Minneapolis. Uh, you know, Greer's got an ego, yes, but you know, he was a he was a fairly esteemed, or he is a fairly esteemed medical doctor that, yeah. that ran the emergency room in a in a good hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, for years before he gave up that very promising medical career and devoted the rest of his life to uh, to disclosure and contact. Um, I've met tons of doctors like him. They all have huge egos. I've met tons of lawyers like that. They all yeah. have huge egos. I mean, I, I've yeah. worked with plenty of those guys in a public relations capacity, and yeah. it, it's not a big deal to me. If they didn't have big egos, I don't think they could do what they what they do, whether they're in medicine or yeah. ufology. Exactly. That's what I said, is, is if, if, if it weren't for Stephen Greer's ego, anybody else would have walked away after all the stuff he put up with. Like, you can't just continue to go bang your head against a wall up in Washington, unless you're really self-assured. Anybody else would just say, I don't need this. I'm, I'm out of here. So you need those, those kind of people to, to stand the ground and, and do, do what he did. So when did you meet Greer and when did you leave CSETI? So go, uh, go through I, this whole thing. Cause I, yeah. I think this goes through your whole book. You just keep bringing this up. That this is like almost like your, main part of your story that weaves through everything this this uh work that you did for Stephen Greer so describe your your uh, association with him and with the other people like Sherry Adamack and and some of these other people that were were around at the time uh I met Greer this August of 1991 I believe and when I couldn't publish that story I'd written about him, I became his publicist and I was his publicist from the end of that year until roughly 97, I think. Uh, we did the first disclosure event at the Westin Hotel in Washington in 96. Might have the date wrong there. It's 97. 96, yeah. 97. 97, yeah. And uh, that was kind of an interesting event in and of itself. Uh, Steve had a very small organization at that time, and yeah. I've been pretty impressed with how he's, number one, stayed with it as long as he has, but number two, he's, you know, he's got international working groups now throughout the Western world and yeah. Europe and Japan and maybe probably Australia, even, I don't know, I, I haven't followed it that, that close in detail, but uh, Sherry Adamak was a... Uh, really hardworking, dedicated Denver 
CSETI member who kind of became Steve's right-hand person uh, and confidant. And then we had Dr. Joe Burks from LA, who yeah. another medical doctor in the Kaiser healthcare system, who was a newbie to this whole thing uh, about the same time I was when I came into it. And Joe sent me this very disturbing monogram by Martin Canner, Cannon called the controllers, which I talked pretty seriously about in chapter three about the psychotronic weapons and how abductions can be hoaxed. And yeah. uh, it's funny because right before I published, I, I stumbled on this uh, disavowal that he made of his work, this monogram he had turned into a 300 page book, which I didn't read and it's now out of print, but he, he pretty much turned his back on the whole thing said, look at this thing is, this thing has gotten me into more trouble than I ever imagined, which to me is like, okay, dude, you protest too much. We know it's all true. <laughs> you know, I have no idea where he is today, but I'd love to sit down with him and have a conversation like the one we're having right now. But, uh, you know, Sherry was a hard worker, really passionate about uh, everything she said he was doing at that point, which was the CE5 initiative, human initiated contact. And then the disclosure efforts. Um, I washed out of the organization in the late 90s, uh, mostly just because I had a growing family and I had a growing PR practice and I couldn't devote the time to it without a, a decent payday. So, yeah. Now you were around for some of the other big events that uh, you mentioned the one with the, the congressional hearing, which a lot of people, when, when I brought this up, they also said, oh, this is all garbage. This is and I know I taught you, you talked about the one um, encounter where Hillary Clinton makes this comment on the Diana Reem show. <laughs> and she's actually talking about a, a Republican congressman. His name escapes me, but I actually talked to that guy's assistant. He was at that, that briefing. He was a, and, and his assistant was an experiencer. And I remember when I sort oh. of made this kind of public, she went nuts. She said, you're going to get me killed. What are you doing? And it's like, and so I knew they mentioned some of the people that were in this this briefing thing where Stephen went up on the hill and he got uh, congressional staffers and, and people like that. And a lot of people don't believe that story, but I firmly believe he had a lot of high level people in that room, maybe even Gore's assistant, or I'm not sure. You can maybe clarify who you thought was in that room in 97. Well, <clears throat> Greer made several trips to Washington in the nineties and then probably even more after I left his orbit uh, it wasn't just one or two meetings on the Hill. It was many meetings on the Hill, um, mostly set up by uh, Commander Will Mil Miller, who had uh, his own sighting of, a, what do they call the underwater, the submersibles? Yeah, yeah. He had his USOs? own sight, yeah. I think, around in Vietnam one time. And uh, Commander Miller had access. Miller? What's that? Did you meet Miller? Did you oh, ever yeah. Have... Yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, because he 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 walked away as well when this whole thing about the the Joint Chiefs of Staff thing he he walked away and sort of denied the whole thing and and you know almost the same that that, that John Peterson did in terms of like get me out of here when it all sort of becomes public. Yeah, I, I don't know how Will left, um, and I was never really tight with him like I was yeah. with some of the other folks in the organization, but uh, you know Greer briefed a lot of generals. He briefed a lot of folks over in England, like Lord Hill Knowlton. Yeah. He was yeah. pretty close with, with the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all those meetings were, were real uh, at the time that he was having them. I, he was also unraveling how the secrecy works. And I was always skeptical of this. I mean, I always kind of had to take one step back when Steve would lay out all this information and evidence I'm calling whoa man I don't know if I could buy that yeah. uh, but I think you know to his credit he does his homework um, he makes mistakes like we all do and yeah. he's made some I think some personal uh, enemies with the mistakes he's made but uh, in the scope of things and I say this in the book um, I think his sins are venial. They're not, they're not mortal sins, yeah. as the Catholic Church defines sinning. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people always say, well, gee, you know, this is a, this is a Valentine 
to Greer in part, the Space Pink Club. And I'm going, well, yes and no. But, you know, I, I looked around the field of ufology and I said, I don't see anybody talking about what he's talking about. I don't see anyone exposing how the secrecy works. This guy has his pulse on both of those issues, which, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, there's, there's probably life on other planets. It's probably visiting here, but how could this be kept secret for so long? That's probably a more important question those, you know, the skeptics or the sideliners will have than, than the whole ET hypothesis. And, and it's a good, it's a good look. It's, you know, but the U.S. government's, you know, parts of it, the intelligence agencies and the black and the people that operate in the black world there, they can do this in their sleep now. They, you know, they have the compartmentalization set up. They have all the processes set up, the special access projects, the unacknowledged special access projects. I didn't hear anyone talking about that stuff in, in, the, in the UFO community. So... Maybe it is a Valentine to Greer. I don't know. I exposed some of his warts and, you know, to make it not seem like a Valentine. But uh, again, you know, I, I, I still don't see anyone that's, that has the depth of, of knowledge that he does. I mean, I, I read Whitley Strieber's blog pretty religiously, and I, I love the way Whitley's mind works. I'm kind of enthralled by his own personal experiences. But I, you know, I've never seen him delving into the secrecy or, or, uh, you know, doing having the kind of high level meetings that Greer set up. One of the guys on our team was Kevin Foley, who was a friend of mine from St. Paul, across the river here, and <clears throat> Kevin had done advance work for the Clinton Gore campaign, the first, the first campaign, and had a lot of contacts inside that world. Uh, he didn't like the Clintons much. He did like the, the Gores, um, but Kevin put together some meetings and then he was tasked later on with trying to get people to that Weston Hotel disclosure event. And we had a handful of congressmen there and we had some fairly good media turnout, but uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's understandable people would doubt this because it's, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming. Like how can one guy do all this? Well, He's got a very uh, loyal staff, number one, and, and, and people like Sherry Adamack, who unfortunately passed away, uh, was it 90? Same time as Schiff, yeah, 93. Yeah, yeah the Schiff thing bothered me a lot, really seriously bothered me. Here's a guy that goes, a senator that goes looking for the truth at Roswell, and he ends up with cancer and dies six months later. That, that was disturbing. A lot of people think Sherry was assassinated too. I think Dr. Yeah, they both had they both had the same cancer. That was and Greer had it as well, but Greer survived, right? He had a different cancer. Oh, he had a different cancer? Yeah. Did he ever tell you the story about Pendolfi saving his life? Never heard that one. Lay it on me. (laughs) I I just heard. I just heard that he gave a lecture in Toronto where he was and you know, you do the same thing in your book. You you like like I mentioned, we I was talking to Dan Smith who calls himself the chicken little but he's, he wasn't actually the member of the avery but all these people have different code names and bird names and stuff like that and so whenever stephen greer talks i mean i know what he's talking about i know who he's talking about but people in, in the audience wouldn't and he's making reference to this high level intelligence guy and we actually asked ron pandolfi at one point uh sid goldberg from gaia we had them on a a, a, a pod a, a, um a go-to meeting on the internet with his wife and he asked the question does does Stephen Greer vet his material through Ron Pandolfi so Ron is standing in the background Aaliyah his wife is on the online and you can hear Ron in the background going what stuff and then Sid Goldberg repeat, repeats the question does Stephen Greer vet his material through you and then there's this long silence and someone goes I think he just got the answer to your question. So he mentioned, <laughs> he talked about it in Toronto and I, I'm pretty sure I knew who he was talking about. And uh, so you, you have all these sort of like uh, code, code names and stuff like that. And um, so you, you knew, you never had, did he ever tell you about Pendolfi or cause you no, know, you must've, cause you dealt with Dan Smith. Yeah, I, I dealt with Chicken Little quite a bit. He was uh, disturbing Greer so much when he was still practicing medicine that it was interrupting his professional life and his rare 
time with his family and four girls and wife. And he said, can you uh, kind of be my wedge here and, and start taking Smith's calls? Because we were starting to ramp up our disclosure in the 93 and disclosure effort. And, uh, and I said, sure, although... <laughs> When I first met Greer in California two years previous, he's telling me about this guy spreading misinformation about him. Like, no, he's not really a medical doctor. He's a, he's a quack. His ideas are way off the wall. And, and I, you know, I naively said, well, why would he do that? And Greer just said, well, to discredit me, basically, as much as he can. So here he's asking me to, you know, interface with this guy on a regular basis and it became a fairly fairly regular basis i not only took a zillion phone calls from from mr little uh otherwise known as dan smith i never identify him in the book by the way because I, I loved all those avery avery handles of all these guys yeah that's why uh, i figured we bring up the name because you do mention a lot of the avery which we can maybe talk about what, what your impression of the avery and what you thought was going on there but you, you, Dan, Dan is a persistent guy, and it's we used to have a joke about ufology. Well, I did, because I dealt a lot with these guys, and it was the, the big question in ufology is not what you are, what UFOs are. The big question in ufology is what's Ron Pendolfi up to, and, it's, <laughs> and Dan well, is his sort of intermediary, his his sort of spokesman that you know gives him the plausible deniability where he puts it through Dan. Yeah, I mean, we figured out pretty early on that if you were talking to Dan, you were really talking to uh, to Pandolfi, to uh, the weird desk at the CIA, as it was called. I don't know if that's if that's what they really call it, but I, you know, as an English major and a writer, I love the I love the notion. Oh yeah, works at the weird desk. Sounds like something out of Harry Potter. <laughs> wow. So, so the Dan was up to what was he, what was he, did he want you to promote something? Cause they, they actually came to me at one point and wanted me to promote the Avery. They wanted to do a documentary on the Avery. Was he doing that kind of stuff or was he trying to disinform or what was your impression of what Dan was up to? You know, I could really never understand Dan's MO until uh, other than the fact that he seemed to be one of the, you know, one of ufology's biggest groupies. Uh, he, uh, he was at a lot of conferences that I went to. I went to uh, the first Star Knowledge Conference out in uh, Marty, South Dakota on the uh, Lakota Indian Reservation. And he was there. I was shocked, to, actually shocked to see him there. Yeah. And I, I recollect that encounter I have with him there. But uh, at one point, Dan got very serious about having CSETI and I think some other UFO groups uh, try to work toward disclosure. And he dangled a lot of carrots like you know it's time to get take this out of the choir you know <laughs> the same people go to all these damn conferences which is pretty much true yeah. um i haven't <clears throat> been to one in ages but i might hit a few now since i have a new book yeah. but um the uh the overtures dan made seem to imply that if if greer and company were serious about a disclosure effort there would be resources to, to uh, make that happen, you know, money to finance it, um, more evidence to share into the public record. And then I met Danny Sheehan at, the, at a conference, in, at the Laughlin Conference, the annual, what is it, the, is that the UFO the Conference? World, World UFO Conference, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And I was shocked to see Sheehan there because he was kind of one of, been one of my heroes in the public, public square. Uh, all the great stuff work he's done with uh, on that Silkwood case, Watergate, yeah. Yeah. wounded knee. I mean, his resume is impeccable. Contra, yeah. And here he is. He's a lifelong uh, UFO truther. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually bring him in. You, that's one of the big guys you brought into the Greer camp was you, you made the link to Sheehan, right? Yeah. And I found out after the fact that Dan was, was interested in doing a disclosure thing, but you know, he and I talked very quickly over 30 minutes. And the more he talked, I did a lot of listening. He sounded like Steve Greer. I said, well, you got to meet Greer and here's what he's doing. You know, I said, I'm here. I'm here to recruit some of these ufologists from around the world to do this public disclosure event and have them sign on. I mean, I was specifically tasked with that. 
And here's Dan Sheehan. I went, geez, we got to have this guy in our camp. I mean, he wrote a briefing paper for Carter and, and, you know, I, so I told, you know, I told Dan about uh, the CE5 initiative and I told him about the disclosure thing and how it's a grassroots organization, CSETI. And, and uh, he says, I'm totally, he says, I'm totally into this. When can I talk to him? I said, well, you can talk. He's, and before I could answer, he goes, let's talk to him right now. So we went back to my room and then they're on the phone talking and here comes uh, Chicken Little to kind of spy on what we're doing. And uh, there's a funny little description of how that plays out in the book. But uh, I was thrilled to get she in there. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, was giving a lecture in Minneapolis at the Continuum Center, which was run by a really old friend of mine, uh, Jane Barish. And, and I said, geez, Steve Greer would love to meet Ed Mitchell because they're all about consciousness. And she says, well, tell him to fly in. I'm going to have a little party afterwards at my house. And so <clears throat> Greer came up for that. And I described that meeting uh, within the first couple of minutes of shaking hands at the party. I don't know what Steven said to Ed because I couldn't hear it, but Ed went straight outside with his glass of wine and his cigarette. <laughs> and uh, I went, uh oh, well, something, something bad was said. Uh, but I trailed Ed out to the out to the patio, just kind of try to get a sense of what had transpired there. And I, I could never really understand it. But I do know they exchanged cards and before long. Ed was copied on all the CSETI email chains about the disclosure project. We, we called the project Starlight then. Yeah. And Danny Sheehan tried to codify it with uh, all the players in that. And that's gone in, I go into pretty good detail in that too. I mean, you look at all the UFO books that are out there. I don't even think of this as a UFO book. I, I mean, because it goes inside the culture. Uh, I, I think of it more as a historical, cultural and personal memoir that's set in the in in the UFO uh, community, but it you know it, there's a lot of interactions with media like CBS yeah. CBS News's 48 Hours crew that shadowed us to Mexico and the volcano zone made us look like gringo rubes. <laughs> I mean that's that's a fun chapter to read. And a lot of I've been polling my friends who've finished the book and they go, oh yeah, that chapter in Mexico, man, that's that's the shit. <laughs> That's really, that's really, a, that's a fun, that's a fun chapter to read, but I, I also lay into the, the media indifference and intolerance and, and uh, really ignorance on topic until recently. You know, I don't think anybody in the media that yeah. I've ever encountered has ever read anyone's UFO book. Yeah, yeah. And now, now they're in a situation, that's where I said disclosure will come when the major media suddenly realizes they've been had. And, and they're sort of catching on now that, you know, they've been chasing the wrong story for, and now everybody's trying to get a Pulitzer Prize. So they're all, you know, scrambling to see if, if they can figure out what's going on here. Before you jump into that question, yeah. I, that reminds me of that Mark, famous Mark Twain quote, it's easier to fool people than convince <laughs> them they've been fooled. Exactly, <laughs> that, yeah. that says it all right there about what, you know, the, the sort of yeah. media uh, environment that we're in right now. Talking about the media, one of the problems I always found with the media was the fact that, as is, is George Knapp used to say, it's it's a very steep learning curve. It's not like you can come into ufology and and learn. And most of the people that I've dealt with, it's sort of like, okay, we got to do this UFO story. I got stuck with this story. Um, and tomorrow I got to do a dog, a, a dog story on pedigree dogs. And it's 24-7 news thing. And they've got like 24 hours to produce it. And as soon as they get one interview that's good enough for what they need, they basically say, okay, we don't need to interview you anymore. We've got an interview with this guy. I got enough to do the story. And you go back to your regular daily beat because it's just another yeah. story. And that to do the UFO story, you need, as you did, you're, you need 20 years, 30 years of working on this to understand who all the players. That's why I so much appreciate your book because you actually talk who the players are. Like uh, almost nobody mentions the back behind the scenes, Stephen Greer, the meetings, and one of the other media people you bring up that I think you're the only one that, and I actually met one of them, was uh, Sandy Wright and um, uh, Bootsy. Bootsy. Uh, you you dealt with them. You're the only person that ever mentioned them. 
and so go through that story of, of their encounter, how Stephen links up with them and, and how you get sort of cut out of the loop of that sort of deal with Rockefeller. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, sub story in the book. There's a lot of sub stories in this yeah. book. Uh, you know, D Danny Aykroyd, who was so generous and kind to give me a rousing endorsement for this book, among the many things he said about it, and you can read his endorsement uh, at the spacepenclub.com. That's the book's website. And it's also, we also excerpted some of the uh, one sentence from Dan on the cover of the Space Pen Club uh, book. And, uh, you know, Danny said, uh, you know, this book, if nothing else, is a really great bibliography because hopefully I've, uh, I've hit all the right sources. You know, I kind of felt like a, English major writing an endless term, term paper trying to have all my all the right sources and, and all the right information packed into the you know the uh, situations I describe and the supporting material material I use to underscore a lot of it uh, but the uh, Sandra Wright Bootsy Galbraith that was not a pleasant experience for me <laughs> number one uh, how did Steve, Steve, Steve had had several meetings with Rockefeller, Lawrence Rockefeller, who was way into the subject, financed a lot of uh, uh, ufology, you know, poured a lot of money into John Max uh, thing at Harvard, his clinic, where he was doing abduction research, uh, which really pissed off Steve. Yeah, you mentioned that. You know, yeah, you mentioned it. Mac, I think, got a quarter, quarter million. I think we got a whole 30,000 to do the, <laughs> the disclosure thing, including some meetings with Russian generals in, uh, in Asilomar, California, one, one weekend. Uh, and you, you but, drove them. Get in a little bit into that story with the generals. You, well, you I'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, <laughs> Stephen had met, had met Lawrence several times. I think he went to the ranch one time with some other invited ufologists yeah. and yeah. Um, uh, I think Lawrence introduced him to Sandy and Bootsy. He was very friendly with Bootsy. Bootsy was uh, the wife of the French ambassador, uh, John Galbraith. I forget under which president. So they're basically New York socialites uh, that took an interest in this topic. And they became part of the Starlight Coalition. Um, and they were funders of Greer, right? They were funding these two because well, these were, no, they didn't. Well, Rockefeller, Rockefeller funded the Starlight. The first but Sandy, time. Sandy, and Bootsy didn't put any money in, or I know Bootsy was no, supposedly I, running I, the the project. I, I think they were in place to see that Lawrence's money was well spent. Okay, okay. And I flew out and I met them at Sandy's uh, Midtown office. She had a nonprofit she was running and. Uh, they were looking to hire someone to write case studies for the best available evidence package that would be presented to Clinton and other congressional people, whoever really needed to see it, yeah. to try to provoke a, an official disclosure rather than a grassroots one. And uh, uh, Greer had recommended me for the job. I went, oh, wow, I might actually make some money in, in the UFO ghetto, as he so famously calls it. Yeah. Uh, so I spent a couple, I spent a day in New York and the next day, uh, I flew to Laughlin where I met Sheehan. And, uh, when I got home, I, from New York, uh, I called Greer and I said, I think it went well. And he says, yeah, it, it went well. Uh, Bootsy called me and said, the job is yours if you want. And I went, oh, great. Yeah. Well, I'm off to Nevada in the morning. So I'll, I'll, I'll call you from there. And then <clears throat> I got back from Laughlin two days later and there was a voicemail from Bootsy on my home uh, answering machine. This dates me, but this, <laughs> this is the timeline here uh, saying, oh, we've decided to go with someone else for these case studies. I hope you understand. And I hate that. I hate that expression. I hope you understand. <laughs> In the book, I say, what if I don't understand? <laughs> And she was calling me from her beauty parlor. And I went, oh, yeah, that's classy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they stayed with, with us through the, the Asil Asilomar um, event in California. 
we had two Russian generals fly in from the mother country and set up by Valery Uvarov, who's one of Russia's more prominent um, ufologists over there. Great guys, speak, speaks impeccable English. Unfortunately, the two Russian generals hardly had any English. And my job was, was to, on the first day was to pick these guys up at San Francisco International Airport. Well, you know, that's a four hour round, round trip from, uh, from the Monterey Peninsula at a, Sil, a Sil, Silomar where this beautiful conference center is. So I, you know, I'm hustling these guys. I, I picked up the one, one general in the morning. I came back, I grabbed a, a bite to eat. I asked my buddy, Kevin Foley, of any interesting testimony had transpired because we had other people there like Steve yeah. Lufkin, who's name has been dragged through the mud. Figure, yeah. um, and then I headed back out to get the other Russian. And, you know, by the time we got back that night, I mean, it was, it was midnight. So we were all pretty much exhausted, but, uh, and I, I looked at my notes from that event and I looked at some of the videotapes from that. And uh, frankly, I thought the, uh, the general's testimony was kind of underwhelming. We had another guy there named Kent uh, Jeffries. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he did yep, a bunch yep. of bunch of yep. UFO uh, Roswell yep. research that I, I thought was really startling. And, and unfortunately, Kent was part of the first uh, disclosure event at the Weston Hotel in Washington that year. And he bolted right before it started. He got a call from somebody at one of the alphabet agencies and he took off. And that's the last I ever heard of him. Now, wasn't he the guy that made the claim that, because um, I was always suspicious about that, where he suddenly gets a phone call and I've got to go. Wasn't he the guy that was saying that they were making the beings in the factory and this was all, um, this is all controlled by the government and stuff like that, which seemed kind of weird that he didn't actually go under oath to make this testimony. He got out just before, which left everybody saying, oh, this has got to be for real. And he got threatened, which I'm always very suspicious when people get threatened. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, with his uh, claims that you just talked about. It's, that's a new information for me. He seemed to have uh, a lot of new insights and maybe some, you know, witnesses or relatives of witnesses that hadn't been found out yet, although I think, you know, there's been so much work done on Roswell. I, I can't imagine there's anything new there, but some of the stuff he presented back there in, in 93 in Washington, I mean, in, at El Sim, El Sil, El Silomar yeah. in California, rather, that, that, was, uh, that was kind of eye-opening. And of course, we had Ed Mitchell and uh, Brian O'Leary, who was slated for the Mars program. Uh, you know, Brian's a brilliant guy. Uh, they were there contributing comment and asking questions. So it was an interesting session. Yeah, you, you've met you've met a lot. You've met Aldrin. You've met a lot of pretty high level people. That's why I was kind of surprised that your name is is not out there more, is that it's almost like every major player you've encountered, all these major people. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I looked around when I started writing this book 10 years ago, and I thought, I don't think anyone's ever written a memoir about being inside this yeah. subculture, number one. Number two, who's had his own personal uh, UFO sightings, and then a bunch of high strangeness experiences in his own home. <clears throat> I think I might have something here. So I, and I, I also boasted to friends like, uh, if they'd ask me if I'm working on anything, because I, you know, my day job is public relations. Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I'm still working on that UFO book. And they'd all just start laughing like that. You've been working on that damn thing for, I don't know how many years. I said, yeah, well, I'm going to get it done because I need to get it off my chest. <laughs> wow. uh, one of the questions I have is, is Stephen Greer always talks about the fact that he was giving these briefings to the president and there's this one famous expression that he makes and i just want to know whether this was your friend kevin because you said he had these in uh, these encounters inside the the gore and the clintons and stuff like that where greer makes a statement where he gives the briefing and then clinton leaves <coughs> the briefing and then he says um you can do it i can't do it uh, and he's afraid he's gonna end up like jack kennedy you know who said that uh no but i've seen that quote 
who was, yeah, it was whoever took the briefing to um, to Clinton, which um, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who that guy was because I knew it did actually happen. It was just trying to figure out like who are the actual people that inside the Clinton administration because I got the Rockefeller Initiative documents and I was trying to sort all the names out and stuff like that. And Steve did seem to be in there. One of the other names that came up was Podesta. Did you ever run up against Podesta? Because I think the claim was that he'd, he'd give it to Podesta to give it to Obama. So do you know how this briefing thing took place or with the president? Because like, it wouldn't be Stephen doing a personal briefing. No, I think, somebody. I think Stephen used back channels for all those pre presidential briefings from uh, Clinton to Bush to Trump to Obama. Um, I don't know if he's gotten anything into Biden. I haven't heard yeah. about that. But um, they were Podesta, always back, they were always back channels. I did not have any encounters with Podesta, although yeah. I obviously have followed his role in this, and I know he's pretty pretty tight with Leslie Kane, and and uh, he may be directing her. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.